0: You know, I don't know if you've realized this, that we live in a day where there's all kinds of disruptions. Disruptive innovation is a phrase that was uh, coined, I guess, uh, first defined back in 1995. It wasn't a reality in my mind or my thought till, I guess, in the past several years, the word became a, a piece of vocabulary, if you will, to me. But I look back and I see this disruptive innovation happening at least at the turn of, of the millennium, at least since 2000, because that's kind of the time. Period that you start seeing our smartphones become reality, but well, there's been a lot of changes. There's been a lot of disruptive innovation, if you will, in our world. And think about that for a moment. Our iPhones, are you having a, uh, what kind of smartphone do you have? But that is a disruptive innovator. I remember the day back when I used to have to take a phone off of a wall and literally walk with it tied to the wall And if I want to talk to somebody in private, I would have to take the phone with the cord into the closet and close the closet door behind you. And I lived long enough ago that you had to, little when I was a kid, you had to do this and wait for the to go back. And so it was forever. I know some of y'all have no clue what I'm talking about. Watch those old movies and you'll, I never did have to pick it up and and, and do this kind of thing, operator, operator, but uh, there's a... they, you know, Phones have changed, changed the way we live. Airbnb, that's another example of, of, of uh, disruptive innovation. I mean, what has it done to the hospitality industry uh, out there? You know, Spotify, Apple Music. I mean, you, why, you don't even listen to the radio anymore. I don't listen to the radio anymore. I, I, I listen to the music I want to listen to. When I want to listen to it, how I want to listen to it, as loud as I want to listen to it. I don't know about you, but that's the way I am. And when it comes to like worship music, like I go back and I will worship and do these songs that we just, did all week long because we have our own playlist out there. So you can even download that and listen to it. And then one of the that we just sang a few moments ago, brand new song to me. I'm going to go back and just play it all week long and listen to it. Amazon, man, has that not ever messed everything up? Welcome Walmart uh, to, the, to the reality of Amazon and what Amazon has done to our shopping. I can remember when somebody said, oh yeah, in the future, we're going to buy all of our Christmas and our clothes online. I thought you are smoking something because there is no Way I'm ever going to do that. I'm going to buy my clothes in a store. I'm going to try them on. I'm going to take them home. Half the things that I have in my closet, I have bought online. And so... Uh you know, that's a disruptive innovation. What else do they have there? Netflix. I mean, how many of y'all have Netflix at home? Binge-watching wasn't even... Binge is something you didn't do. But now we encourage binge-watching, if you will, because of Netflix and what, what it has brought. Uber and what it has done to the transportation world. These are all innovative disruptions and these disruptions have messed with our normal. They've messed with our status quo. They've messed with the things that, the way we like them. Done. Or maybe we now like this but it was disruptive when they in, were introduced to our world. Even, even in the church, we're expense, experiencing disruptive innovation. In fact, several of our pastors were, went to uh, uh, out to Simi Valley last year in November and four, among 400 other pastors, and all it was was a conversation about innovative disruption inside the church and how things are changing and evolving and how we have to be ready for that. And some of it, I'm telling you to this day, blows my mind mind of what's going on. But when I think about God, God himself is a disruptive God. In a book called Disruption, uh, by, by that very name, a guy points this out. He points out that, that, uh, that God is constantly disrupting. He disrupted darkness when he gave light. He disrupted the law when he gave grace. He disrupted sin when he gave salvation. He disrupted death when he gave life. And he disrupted the sacrificial system of Judaism that was known as the way to connect with God whenever he finally was the final sacrifice for all the nations of the world. So it wasn't just for Judaism, and there was one final sacrifice for the whole world. So you talk about disrupting a system, Jesus disrupted this world, and he disrupted infinity time beyond uh, beyond beyond time uh, out out uh, out beyond our reality to anything that we can comprehend when he stepped into time when the god of the universe who's always been and always has been and always will be and it blows my mind to even try to understand the infinity of god steps into flesh, steps into time, steps into Galilee, steps into Nazareth, of which nothing good comes out of Nazareth. We'll talk about that next week. And he steps into the hood of Nazareth and he moves in and he takes on humanity and time and the limitation of that. It just blows my mind. But he's a disruptive God. And what he does in that moment, as Jesus is living sent, sent by God, That is an example to all of us whenever Jesus will later on say, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me in John 20. Now, how did God send Jesus? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. We talked about this last week. Luke chapter 19, it says this, that I came, this is why Jesus came, I came to seek or to pursue, we're about the pursuit series, and to save those who are lost or without life, without hope, without peace, so Jesus, think about it for a moment, he came into this world, he entered into time and space, he entered into our existence so that he could bring life where there is lifelessness, where he could bring hope where there is hopelessness, he could bring peace where there is war, he could bring sanity where there is insanity, he could bring reconciliation where there is brokenness. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we are sent, when He sent us out to do the very same thing. And how does this peace become a reality? It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It did not just happen in some, you had thinking, happy thoughts. This peace becomes a reality. This life becomes a reality whenever we enter into this relationship with God. Okay, but this relationship's been broken. Romans 5, verse 1 says... That, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, made right by faith, we have peace with God. So, whatever was broken, whatever was frayed, whatever was disconnected, whatever was hopeless between our connection with God, has now been made whole. Has now been reconciled. How did that happen? By faith in Jesus Christ. So, again, this is the hope. This is the. This is what we're. This is what we're about. We're not about religion. We're not about institutions. We're not about buildings. All this could go away. But the reality and the hope and the peace and the joy and the life, that doesn't. You can't take that. And that is the, that is the essence. That's the core. That's the, that's the meat and potatoes of what Jesus said. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. So I came to pursue those who are without life and hope and peace. So therefore, guess what? I'm sending you to do the same thing. This is what this series is about. This is what we're going to talk about. And this is why when, when this great English pastor of years gone by, C.H. Spurgeon, said it like this, every Christian is either a missionary or he is an imposter. Either you are sent, and if you're not sent, then you're an imposter. You're really not a follower of Christ. That's a pretty bold statement. I said, wait, wait, wait Mike, I'm just not ready. I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not a salesman of Jesus, okay? I'm not a pusher of Jesus. Listen, we're not asking you to get black pants and a white button-down shirt and get a bicycle and go ride the streets. We're not asking you to do that. We're asking you to live sent where you live, work, learn, and play. Where Jesus has called you where you are right here and now, not in the future, not where I don't want to go to Africa and live with the click click people or anything like that. I, I'm, not, listen, right here where you live, work, learn, and play, have you ever thought that maybe God has given you breath so that you could be life, hope, peace, joy, the answer to the, a lot of questions that are going on deep inside of them, those students in your school, that you might actually hold the answer? I gave you these cards last week, I asked you to take them home, I asked you to pray about it. Now, some of y'all weren't here last week, some of y'all didn't do your homework from last week, so we're going to give you a second chance, all right? So this little card that you got on your way in today was I'm Alive for Five. I know it's corny, I came up with it, and if it's corny, I probably came up with it, Okay, but it does stick in your mind. I want you to think of, this was the challenge for you last week, was to think of five people in your world where you live, work, learn, and play. Now, they don't have to be all in one category. They may be all in one category. You may have one in each of those categories. You may have, you know, plus one or something like that. But I want you to think about five people. And I why did I say five? Because you have five fingers. And it was going to be easy to remember. Even if you had to tattoo their names on your fingers, you could remember them. I wanted you to think of five people in your life that God may be actually giving you breath today. I know it. I'm being bold here. That your only reason that you're still alive may be seeing these people come to the life that you have in Jesus. And if you don't have that life in Jesus, just hang on. We'll talk about how you can get that connected with, with Him and get that new life. But let's just talk to, I want to talk to those who are followers of Christ, who claim the name of Christ today, that you're alive for a handful Two handfuls of people. But I wanted you to take this card and I wanted you to write down their first name. Now here's the the thing. I'm not going to ask for this card. Keep the card. I don't want to know who your Tom, Dick, and Harry are. I don't want to know who your Mo Larry, or Curly is. I don't want to know them, okay? This is your card. This is with you. This is for you. This is something you're going to keep. I've actually only got four. I've been praying about it all week. I've added one. I added two the first day. I added another one the next day. About two, three days later, I added another one. I'm still praying. I hope God will give me five that I'm going to really pray about. That God, these are, I am alive. And I'm going to pray for the next year that you will bring these people to faith in you. Or at least give me the opportunity to share about you and the hope and the peace that you that, that, that you brought to my life that maybe they, maybe, 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 maybe they're going to want themselves. So I want you to just think about it. And we're going to have a little phone survey. You know when we do the things. Uh, we're going to have a little phone survey here in a little bit and we'll give you a chance to answer that. But I want us to answer, I want us to look at the prologue of the gospel of John. You know what a prologue is—you get a book out, and it's that little opening section that tells you kind of about the whole thing, but it's not the—it's not in the meat and potatoes of it of it all yet. Well, we're going to look at the prologue of the Gospel of John, first chapter, chapter one. Be finding it, and we're going to find where Gospel of John, where, all all the time in this series that I'm going to be sharing, I'll be sharing from the Gospel of John, and it's going to kind of go through about mid October, and and we're going to be just looking at the different ways and times that Jesus, Jesus, is our model. How he lives sent. Because if we're going to live sent, let's live it like Jesus. Because if really you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to live like Jesus, right? That only makes sense. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to live like Jesus. And if Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those who are lost, and oh, by the way, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, then I, I need to kind of get on the same page with you, God. I'm going to follow your example. So the prologue of the Gospel of John is really just kind of us giving us the foundation of how Jesus lived his life. Now, what you're going to find as you go through the rest of the Gospel of John, and you should read it on your own during this next couple months or so, you should read the Gospel of John. I want you to circle every time you see the word sent in the Gospel of John, because you're going to circle it about 60 times. Forty-five of those times, 44, excuse me, 44 of those times, it is literally God-sending. Now, that's how much God is ascending God. Now, that's just in the Gospel of John. That one-third of the Gospel of John, of every time it's sent, it's God sending. And if you look just from chapter 4 to chapter 8, you'll find that in those verses alone, in four chapters, 14 different times, Jesus refers to God sending him. This whole sent thing that we talk about, live sent, live sent, live sent, this is not our invention. This is a Jesus God thing. And we're just trying to get it on him. We're just trying to model him. Now, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of Jesus and how he lives sent. We're going to look at a lot of different examples of that in the weeks ahead. But let's just jump into the prologue today. Because if your Christianity doesn't propel you to this world, Propel you to your schools, propel you into your neighborhoods, you got to fake Christianity. Verse 9. The true light which gives light. Just hang on to that. The true light which gives light. Say it, say it with me. The true light which gives light. So, what did I say from the beginning? Our life is a life that gives life. We have life to give life. It's not we have life to consume life. We have life to spend life. We have life to live life. We have life actually to give life. He uses the metaphor of light. We have life to give light to everyone. Was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. Probably the saddest verse in the Bible, I think, is this verse. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, didn't accept him, didn't embrace him. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the beauty. I love the butts of the Bible. Here's one of the butts. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you receive him, you become his child. That's a pretty awesome deal. You believe in him, you receive him, you become his child. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So I didn't choose to do it. It happened to me, nor of the will of man. So nobody forced it upon me, but it was God who made me his child. And the Word became flesh. Now we're going to get into the Jesus conversation because the Word, the Word all through chapter 1 is referring back to Jesus. And the Word became flesh. So entering out of, out of, out of eternity, out of infinity, and He steps into time. And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only, of the, of the only Son of God, uh, from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now John, who's he referring to? John the Baptist who he refers to earlier in this chapter. He said, John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is not the big potentate. He's not the big kahuna. No, no, don't know. John is actually going to point people to Jesus in the whole grand story of the things because he, Jesus, is before him. For from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we've received grace upon grace. Now, this is the third time he mentions grace. He's going to mention it four times in four verses. Make note of that. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. Let that just sink in a little bit and let's answer this question. This whole disruptive innovation conversation that I started the message with. How does Jesus disrupt us? How does following Jesus and living sin, how is that a disruptive part of life? Because you're not going to go on living the same and follow Jesus, okay? You can't go with God and stay where you are. You're going to have to move out But when you move out, it's not going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun because the very first response or the very first thing you need to think about is that first disruptive element and this is the disruption of acceptance. Not everybody's going to be excited about Jesus and not everybody's going to be excited about you saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. They would much want you to be much more inclusive. They would want to keep maybe to their standard status quo faith. And so there's this disruption of acceptance that literally some people may not accept you. I'm not telling you to go be belligerent. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be shove it down your throat, argumentative kind of Christianity. That that stuff is repulsive to me and it is to many other people. But let's look at Jesus himself and the response that he got. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here's the reality. It's not, not everybody that when you go with the message of peace and the message of hope and the message of love and the message of grace, and you go with the message of truth and you go with that message, not everyone is going to say yes. In fact, many are going to say no. Not interested. I'm not, I'm not buying what you're selling. I'm not with you. And that's hard because we feel rejected. We feel unaccepted. But listen, they're just not accept. It's not about you. They're not accepting Jesus. Jesus even said that in Luke 10. Luke 10, here's the verse. It says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. The one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So really, when, we, when I go into this world, it's not my responsibility to make that person a follower of Christ. It's my responsibility to live Christ in their presence, to show and to share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people and leave the results to God. Let God do what he's going to do in their heart. Because in the reality, and this is a study that I've seen multiple times from multiple sources, is it's going to take about six to eight different times of you sharing the gospel with somebody before you'll ever see somebody receive Christ. So if you're a one and done kind of person, if you go, okay, I'm going to go share Jesus and his peace and his love and what he can change in their life. And you think, if, if they don't accept Christ, then I'm done. No, it's going to take about six to eight times. And I think that number is actually climbing in this day of post-Christendom. If you're going to be a life giver in this world, you're going to, it's going to require patience, persistence, and prayer. Patience, persistence, and prayer. One of, the five, one of the four names that I have on my list, I've already shared the gospel with and they've already told me no. So did I go, oh, okay, done with that guy. Mark him off, he can go to hell. No, I didn't. I'm praying for this dude. I'm praying. I'm believing. And guess what? I have seen God already begin to work in him. We're friends. We're going to stay in contact. I'm not hurt. I'm not offended. He didn't reject me. He might have rejected the message. He might have rejected Christ. But I'm going to keep on loving and, 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 and giving love. And here's the reality. So many people, so many people are, get just frozen here. Christians, they can just get frozen. Somewhere around 97% of Christians will never lead a person to follow Christ in their entire life. I challenge you. I'm going to raise the bar. Andrew mentioned this in his, in, when he was talking earlier. Michael asked challenge. challenge. Uh, here's the challenge. I'm going to pray that you're going to share the gospel so many times in this next year. I will pray that your goal, that you'll lead, bring, lead one person just one person in the next 365 days to following Jesus. That doesn't mean you're going to be one and done. It means you may be eight, nine, ten sh- times sharing the gospel with one person or multiple people. But think, think about it. Like if all of us would just continue to share and show Jesus or show and share Jesus in those everyday conversations with everyday people, what would God do to awaken, to turn the light on in people's lives, to bring hope where there's hopelessness and peace, where there's where there's war, forgiveness, forgiveness, Oh my goodness, forgiveness. Where there's absolute, utter anger and the inability to forgive. It's going to take patience, persistence, and prayer. I love it that our women, they're getting together in a couple of weeks and if you haven't signed up, you should because only about a third of the spots are available, but what they're going to talk about is just the story thread about God writing and threading and needling and, and sewing. I don't even know the right words, but, but the, all what you do with the, the things that you do to put together things. But God's going to piece together the story. He's been piecing together your story. And what if you could just take your story and your story becomes an avenue in which God uses to make their story become a God story? Your story... God's story, their story becomes a God's story. You're woven into them. They're woven into you. An incredible time. Ladies, take advantage of it while, it can, while you can. Next Sunday, we're going to have our baptism gathering. We've already got 20 plus people signed up for this. Well, here's what I like, love about this. Every single person has a story. We give those people that are going to get baptized about 30 seconds of a video. But if you only knew the story behind the story, if you only knew the full story of God's grace and redemption, of God wooing and calling, of God of God needling His story into their story, if you only could hear the full-length story, it would blow your mind. Some of them were as simple as a little child just growing up and receiving Christ. This coming week, it'll be a great time. It's when the light comes on. It's why we're celebrating lights. Every one of those stories is a light. I want us to read a verse together. We read it earlier, four, verse 4 and 5. Uh, or we didn't read it. I want us to read it because I want you to see what it says. In Him was life. Read it with me. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness... What's stronger, light or darkness... Light will always push out the darkness. Jesus is the light. He can be the light. He can take care of those dark crevices of our life and make us, but it's going to disrupt us. And we may not always be accepted, and they may not always accept our message, but here's another disruption. There's the disruption of location. Notice what Jesus did. He moved in To the neighborhood, so many Christians insulate and isolate, insulate and isolate, insulate and isolate. We all need a few dams and hells in our life. We all need to kind of sit in the smoking section every now and then. We need to have people far from God in our life that we can can understand and empathize with and, and walk through life's journeys and struggles and ups and downs, that we are literally empathetic in their life. And you know, I love it when Jesus moves. He didn't move to Rome. Rome! Rome was the capital of the world. He could have moved to Rome. He could have been born to Caesar. He could have been so many other things that would have given him immediate rise to the top. He didn't. He went to a surrogate state that was under the thumb of Rome. He went to the, not Jerusalem, not not Bethlehem or not Tel Aviv or modern day Tel Aviv or Joppa. He didn't go to any of those other major port cities of Caesarea. He went to the know-nothing, nobody town of Nazareth. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus made friends with people far from God. In fact, so much so that it created this disruption again. Whenever he started hanging out with those who were tax collectors and sinners, those who were gluttons and drunks, he got lumped into the circle with them. You see it in Scripture multiple times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these accounts. But this is one of them, Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. It says, the Pharisees saw this, and they said to the the disciples, they can talk to Jesus directly, but they wanted to insult Him through the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because Jesus came for them. In fact, He said, I didn't come for the well. I came for those who were sick. We've got to realize that God has put us on this earth. He has given us life so that we could give life to others. Let's live it. He's given us peace so that we can give peace to others. He's given us hope so we can give hope to others. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt is literally the idea of pitching a tent. He pitched a tent. Now, in a nomadic culture, that really makes sense. He pitched a tent in Nazareth. He pitched a tent among the, the, the tax collectors and sinners. Some of the translations say it like this, modern translations, he took up residence among us. The word became flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood, the message says. Jesus moved into the hood. What if you, what if, well, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but what if you live in the subdivision you live in or the apartment complex that you live in or the neighborhood that... What if you actually thought for a moment, I'm here because I'm to be life with those I live around. I'm to, to be a source of hope. John Stott said it so well. He said, It's impossible to truly to, to be truly converted to God without thereby converted to the neighbor. We got to learn that we're here for our neighbors. We're here for those that are around us. We can't miss them. And sometimes our face is so buried in our life, so buried in our things, that we miss those that are just right there in front of us. There was a time when Jesus was with his disciples. In fact, we'll come to that story in a few, moment, or in a few days, weeks, uh, in, in chapter four, whenever he's there and they bring back food because they went to the market and they've traveled all day and they come back with their kush-kush and they're gonna, they're gonna spread it out and they're gonna eat, everyone eat. And... Uh, and as they're, as they're getting ready and, and their eyes are on their food, uh, Jesus said, my food, my food is not that. My food is to do the will of my Father who sent me, one of those times, and to finish his work. And then he says this in a powerful way in three imperative commands. He said, look, I tell you, lift up. Your eyes, get it out of the kush kush, and see that the fields are white for harvest. I'm telling you, we got to get our eyes off our computer screens. We got to get our eyes off of our television screens. We got to get our eyes off of our food, off of our mirrors of looking at ourselves, and we got to look around. There's people around us that need hope, that need peace, that need life, and we got it. If we got it, we got to give it, because that's why we're living—to give life, to live life, and to give life. It's a disruption, though. It's going to be a disruption in your life. It's going to be a disruption in the way that you're going to live and think and breathe and where you're going to execute life and live strategically where you're living. Think about it like that. Here's another disruption, a disruption of lifestyle. This is where we say living sin means to show. It starts with showing. Showing and sharing. Showing is the idea of I'm going to show, I'm going to model with my life. Now, there's a little statement you've heard it, I've heard it. I, I got to read it because I'll mess it up. It says, Your talk talks and your walk walks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. It's a mouthful. Think about it. Your, your life, I mean, you can talk all day about what you believe, what you, what you, what you, what you, but no, no, no. Let's look at your life. Let's look at how you talk to your spouse. Let's look at how you relate to your children. Let's look at how you forgive when you're hurt. How you love and love the unlovables of your life. See, the world is watching. And whenever Jesus came and he planted himself on the earth, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. he pitched his tent in the neighborhood and people were accepting him and people weren't accepting him. As he's living out this live-sent kind of life in the midst of all of this, at the same time, people are watching him. And what they see, it says in that verse, it says, And we have seen his glory. That word scene is where we get the English word theater from. They were watching Jesus. They were watching him when he was in the streets. They were watching him when he was on the water. They were watching him when he was in the city. They were watching him when he was on the countryside. They were watching him when he walked to Samaria. They were watching him when he was in Galilee. They were watching him. They were watching him and they were seeing. What were they seeing? They were seeing the fullness of God, the glory of God, the power, the glory, the fullness of God. We got to show Jesus. We got to show Jesus off. We, The number of times in Scripture that it tells us, I'm talking to the Christians here, followers of Jesus, listen up. The number of times it tells us to watch your behavior with outsiders is incredible. I'm not even going to put up 1 Peter. That's another one. I should have put it up there when I was collecting all these. But it says in Colossians, it says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That means basically be wise when you're around people who are outside the faith. Don't be stupid, okay? Wise up. Act like it. Walk properly toward outsiders. Make sure everything's lining up, okay? Make sure there's consistency in your life. Don't say one thing and do another thing. Well thought of among outsiders. See, we exist as a church. We exist for those who are not yet here. We exist as the kingdom of God for those who are not yet a part of the kingdom of God. As long as we're breathing, as long as we have air, as long as we're existing, we exist for those who are not yet followers of Christ. Because we are here for that very reason. And nobody, I mean, I don't know about you, when I'm streaming a movie on Netflix or something like that, and the mouth is doing this and the voice is behind, that's so annoying. I will turn you off in a heartbeat. Because if the voice doesn't line up, if the audio doesn't line up with the video, you're a big turnoff to me. Well, so it is in life. You're a great big turnoff when your audio doesn't line up. Somebody said it like this. Integrity is when your tongue and your mouth and the tongue in your shoes are going in the same direction. Make sure that your lifestyle has been disrupted by Jesus and that, your, that the glory of God is being seen. There's one more disruption that I can't, we can't miss, and that's the disruption of essence, of the essence of who you are and what really defines you. What, is your, what defines your life? What's your story about? If you were to write a novel, if you were to write a movie script, if your story was told on the big screen, would it be a miniseries? Would it be a short story because it's pretty much boring and bland and it's just really about 15 minutes and I'm done. That's my life. Or would it be a miniseries? Man, I've had more dumpster fires and more drama. I can create a whole miniseries out of my life. You know, what, 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 somewhere in between there is, is your life. And what would your story be? Would it be like Groundhog Day? Just the same old, every day, living the same old day over and over again? Would it be war and peace? It just happens to be more war than peace. Would it be, and this is not a movie, I don't know of one anyway, shame and regret? That really when you look at your life, oh, you covered it over with a lot of stuff, but there's a lot of shame and regret. And that that might be the summary of it. I regret, shame and regret in relationship, shame and regret on job, shame and regret in character, shame and regret. You know, what is it? There was a time in David's life, and this is a man that was after God's own heart for a while, but he gets off course, he starts living his own lie. He starts living his own lie and thinking that, hey, I'm a king, I can do what I want to do. And it was one another brother in his life named Nathan who steps up and kind of gives him a kind of a, a, a talking to, and he kind of draws him back in line. He said, listen you, you're the one. The metaphor that he tells, I don't have time to go into it, but he, he calls him out and he says, you're the one, you're the, you're the guilty one. And David, man, just he just sinks. You, just, you read the text and you can just see it. Scholars believe that he went for likely a full year of living in the guilt and the shame and the regret of his killing of Uriah, his sleeping around with Bathsheba, is taking another man's wife, and the shame and regret. For a year that he lived in the guilt and the shame, the guilt and the shame, and the guilt and the shame of that. And when you read Psalm 32, I have to believe it's probably true. Psalm 32, 3 to 5, and this out of the message, just to kind of put it into everyday language, he says, When I kept it all in sight, I didn't share it with anybody, even though a lot of people knew about it, I kept it to myself. My bones turned to powder. My words became day-long groans. The presence, the pressure, excuse me, the pressure never let up. I could never live a day without it. I could never get by without it. I could never, I woke up in the morning and it slapped me in the face. It came over me. It was was a pressure. It was a cloud. It was was on me. All the, the juices of my life dried up. Then I let it all out. I said, I make a clean breast of the failures to God. And suddenly, the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. Whenever he faced the reality of truth and stopped getting off the lie, his life was one of shame and regret. When he brought it back to truth, he lived in peace that's the message that we have because there's a lot of people out there and you know them they're living in that shame regret life that war and peace where there's more war than peace they're living that emptiness and that's why when we say live sin it's not only showing but it's also sharing like nathan did with david showing and sharing jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people everyday conversations with the people that are in our world now what does jesus do and I, I, I'm finished here. Look what he does. How does he come? What does he carry? What's the essence of who Jesus was? What was the essence of his storyline? What was the essence of his message? He was full of, say it with me, grace and truth. That should be my storyline. Not shame and regret, but grace and truth. Grace and truth. What a, what a, what a What a, what a difficult but yet beautiful. What a sweet and a sour. What a, what a, what a combination of grace and truth. Truth and grace. And sometimes I need more truth than grace and sometimes I need more grace than truth. And God knows exactly what I need to complete His story and make the full essence transformation of my life. What is grace? Grace is, it comforts us. It comforts us. It it, it makes me whole again. It, It completes me. It's that undeserved, unmerited, unjustified working of God in my life. And in your life, we all need grace. But we all need truth as well. And some people don't like the truth. They want to stay over here in the grace camp. They want that undeserved, unmerited, unjustified favor from God. But over here is the truth. The truth is what calls us in line. The truth is what gives us a compass to steer our lives off of. So we kick, we get out of the shame and regret cycle. And this is what God does in the individual lives as we go and we live sent. I want to close by telling you the story of Josh. Josh, I've come to love Josh, uh, but he has a story. You can see by these photos, starting in the top left, that he has a story. You may have seen Josh. He comes to the first gathering most of the time. He sits right back in this section right here. He's in a wheelchair and he's given me permission, his family has given me the permission to share this story. But it was five years ago, seven months and 29 days, after a number of incidents of trying to rescue Josh out of his free-spirited lifestyle, I should say where he thought he could do what he wanted and could take what he wanted. It was his life. He was late teens, early 20s. And he got some bad drugs. And he got an overdose of drugs. And he went into a coma. And the doctors pronounced him brain dead. And I said to the family, I said, can I share that part? Are you okay with that? I said, share it. He was brain dead for two months in a coma. And didn't know if he would survive, but the all accumulation total two months in the coma, five months in the hospital, 18 months in rehab. It was five years, seven months, and 29 days. Now you can see from the photos that Josh has made improvements. So it kind of tells, gives the ending before the beginning, but it doesn't give it all the ending. Because Josh grew up in this incredible home with incredible parents and incredible faith and everyone serving the Lord, but Josh decided that truth wasn't good for him. Free-spirited was going to be good for him and he was going to go free-spirited track and get away from God track. And so he went that track and it landed him nearly in death. And in this process of coming back to life again, the doctor said, because he's Paralyzed, he's he's immobile in every way, and he says, You're gonna have to learn to crawl before you'll walk. Well, fast forward the five years, seven months, and twenty-nine days, he's still in a wheelchair, but he can stand up and he can walk because he has worked hard, he's got great therapists. Some people have even seen him at the gym working out where he's trying to get his strength to live his life again. It's an incredible story of God's grace, but it doesn't even end there that he's got his life back together again. This has been a five year, seven month, 29 day journey for him, or actually 20 day journey for him, because in the past year, it was not only his body coming to life, but it was his spirit coming to life. Because last Sunday, he told his parents, totally blew them away, and they weren't here last Sunday because they had a special service at their house. Because Josh got up and told them, hey, I'm ready to get baptized. Okay, what's going on, Josh? Everything stops in the house. Grandma's there, everyone's there. They all sit down, they all download, what's going on, Josh? Josh just, in his way, tells them that I have given my life to Jesus. So I'm not only physically got new life, but I'm spiritually getting new life and I want to get baptized today. And so Josh, last Sunday, with his family and his brother there and his dad there, helping him out into the pool and then declares his faith. And I've seen the whole video. I'm only going to show you a little bit of it. But it's just a beautiful testimony of Josh and his rebirth and his declaration of life. And I want you to see just this little clip right here. Watch it. Yeah. So, Father, just thank you for Josh. Um, Father, I thank, you for, um, I thank you for his confession. I thank you for his life. Um, and Father, I thank you um, for the man that he has um, decided that he is he's living into and that he's choosing to be. And Father, I thank you that um, when he enters the baptismal tank, he's carrying a cross, but when he leaves, he's wearing a crown. Um, and Father, I, just, I thank you that the full revelation of royalty would have its perfect way in him. Um, and that as, as we do this, it's, it's signifying and it's, and it's representing the fact of what he's leaving behind and what he's stepping into. So in the name of Jesus, your father, uh, Josh, we just baptize you right now in the name of the father and the son and in the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. You know, every life matters to God and you have a story, how much is God a part of your story? Is it one marked by grace and truth? Would you bow your head with me? I just want you to go inside of you for a moment. And I want you to try to push past the doubts and skepticism, push back the wounds that maybe are from the past, push back the shame and regret And I want you to answer the question, is Jesus the essence of my life? Have I experienced His grace? Am I walking in His truth? His truth will confront me. His grace will comfort me. Are you walking? Are you living in grace and truth of Jesus Christ? We're not pushing. We're not selling. We're living in And we're giving Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I pray right where you're at, you say right now to Jesus, Jesus, I give myself to you. I don't even fully know what that means, but I give myself to you. We're not going to have what we normally have, and we probably should, but we're not. We normally have this little response time, gives you a chance to kind of reflect and gather your thoughts and listen to God and answer in prayer and whatever. But I want to encourage you: if you have today given your life to Christ, you go to somebody in our prayer room. There's some people people over there. I, I'm going to be out in the gallery area. You'll see pastors around. You can go to mix and mingle. You can talk to them. Tell someone before you leave, I've given my life to Jesus. Let me pray. God, you're so incredibly gracious to us and you give us truth to keep us on the right track. You give us grace when we get off the right, off the, uh, off the right track and you give us truth to get back on the right track. And God, whether we need comforting today by your grace or we need confront, confrontation today by your truth, I pray that you will meet us at the point of our greatest need. And the Father, just as Josh declares his faith in Jesus boldly and proudly, we look forward to next Sunday when many more will declare their faith in Jesus boldly and proudly. Or would you do a continual work in us that we would live sent in the name of Jesus? We pray. Amen.